Over under on the number of pies at your Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, the best number is three types. Of course, you got to have pumpkin pie, apple pie, and then sweet potato pie. Where are you at over under? I'm gonna go probably four. Two of the ones you mentioned uh, we'll never have. No apple, no sweet potato. Okay, what are the other types on your end? Pumpkin, yes. Pecan pie. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Lemon. Mmm. Coconut. And then, yeah, probably apple would be the last one if there's a fifth or whatever. That's a far fifth. Yeah. I mean, it's if somebody gets ambitious, you know, we may have that as well. Um, But uh, I mean, we're flying, so I'm not taking any pies. (laughs) I don't know how that works in TSA. Depends on the type of pie, if it's a liquid or a solid. Welcome to Touchpoint a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 358. Right here before Thanksgiving. Right here before Thanksgiving. That's about how many servings of pumpkin pie I'll have at Thanksgiving. <laughs> that may be the over-under on pies. I don't know. Uh, 358. I feel like that to some extent. Welcome one and all. I uh, hope you're having uh, hopefully a few days off. Maybe you're listening to this later. Let's hope you're listening to this later. I, I don't know. I'm just glad you're here. Certainly appreciate the support. Mm-hmm. Chris and I are very thankful that we have people that care that that have any desire to listen to this show and so it's still amazing all these 358 episodes later couple of plugs again uh very thankful for you the listener rate review subscribes number one way you can help us out tell somebody else about it that's all wonderful stuff visit the website touchpoint.health touchpoint.health you can find out more about this show but also more importantly sign up for the tps report which is an email comes out on mondays five articles to start your week and so hopefully that's a little value add to you the listener in that email as well as if you track us down on linkedin you'll see something about an end of year survey listener survey so again a little bit of feedback for us let us know how we're doing what you like what you don't like you know that kind of stuff also goes against you get to vote on the awards it's award season over here on the pod. <laughs> so anyway, we'll, we'll give you a minute. Go sign up for the TPS report. And again, look for the link in the email Monday to the survey or again, track us down on LinkedIn. So we'll pause here and then be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is, and Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews, and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand, they demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. 
And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. So a little different format today, Reed, because everybody's kind of either traveling or maybe recovering from eating uh, Thanksgiving dinner, listening to our podcast, or as you said, maybe listening later. So we decided what we're going to do today is do a triple helping of stories, top stories that we're seeing in the news. And we're going to share our hot takes on what these stories are about and our perspectives on this. It's kind of a lighter episode today and uh, yeah. one that you can listen to while you're drifting off in your tryptophan sleep nap. That happens sometimes after eating too much turkey. Yes, that's right. And we, you know, we've done something like this in the past, you know, kind of a news roundup, if you will. Um, if you like that format, would love to know. We kind of like it. It's kind of fun to do. How often we do it, we'd love to hear from you. So yeah, let's jump in. The first article is about getting care from a pod. Ah. <laughs> so let me tell you what that means. There's an article that we found on fiercehealthcare.com. It uh, is titled Primary Care Player Forward Unveils an AI-Based Self-Serve Care Pods Backed by a $100 million Series E Round. So let's jump into this a little bit, Reed. It's a lot of money. Yeah, it is. It's a lot of money. You know, the idea, picture, if you will, you know, something like ATM vestibule size uh, that is somewhere out in public, maybe a university campus or otherwise uh, a library where you can go and actually receive care. There are a lot of things kind of in this space. Uh, I say a lot of things. There are a number of things in this space where it's more of like a telehealth visit, right? Like you're hopping in, uh, you know, something the size of the, the little machine that you took pictures at at your last wedding and uh, you close the little curtain or whatever. I don't know. What do you think? Good idea. People going to use these things. So first of all, let's think about the application of this. These care pods, I guess you go in and it will use AI and other digital tools to screen and diagnose your health conditions. They're putting it in places, like you said, like in a mall or a gym or even an office space. They're actually thinking about launching these in San Francisco, New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia. So very urban settings here. And the vision here is to make it a very easy way to access care without having to wait for someone to be there to take care of your care. Before I get into what my perspective on this is, Reed, let me share with you what Adrian Aoun, who's Ford's outspoken founder and CEO, said. He said that today, healthcare is based on doctors and nurses, and they're awesome, but you're never going to scale doctors and nurses to the whole planet. Their insight was actually healthcare that should just be a product. We should just take every single thing that doctors and nurses are doing and migrate it over to hardware and software because we could scale that to the planet. Okay. I'm not going to pretend like there's not a labor issue in healthcare, right? Whether you're talking about nurses or doctors or any other clinician. So the idea that you could receive care for certain elements of the acuity spectrum, if you will, via AI is not like the worst idea I've ever heard. And I do think there's a certain population that's looking for certain types of care that this makes sense, right? Again, I go back to kind of the you put this in the student union there at the university downtown. And if you're feeling under the weather, you have the flu, you need a refill for you know some sort of medication or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think there's a need for this. Let's just put it that way. Whether this is the right way to execute on it, I, it leaves a lot to, to answer here. Because so these pods, it looks like a little closed cubicle room. The, the mock-up shares it, right? So what happens? You go inside and you close the door and suddenly all these scans go all over your body. And then suddenly, yeah. you know, I'm not sure how that would work. I'm also, in my mind, my hot take on this is, how does it disinfect itself between seeing people? Yeah, I was just thinking, like, what happens when somebody throws up in there? Yeah. <laughs> right. Or, or like, uses it as a bathroom. Yeah. So somebody gets sick in there, you know, then what happens? And, like, how do you service them? And I'm, I'm sure I'm not – I know I'm not the first person to have thought of this. So, um, you know, they, they've somehow figured this out or have an idea at least how they're going to handle it. I think we will see more of this. I, you know, how much different is this than the AI DIY functionality we're building on our websites, for example? Yeah. Most of what we're doing there is somewhat pre-visit focused scheduling, you know, that kind of thing, I guess, but still. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think for lower acuity types of things, this is perfect, right? You connect this in, by the way, to something like, uh, you know, like an Amazon pharmacy deliverable too, you could actually probably prescribe certain medications through this product and maybe even have a, uh, you know, a little vending machine that can dispense, you know, whatever drugs you might need on your way out, depending on its diagnosis. The idea, the concept is great, but I don't agree with the fact of just moving it all to technology only. I still think there is a role for people in the healthcare experience. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Prescription refill is kind of where my head goes, but then I'm thinking like, well, why are you not just doing that through an app or portal, right? Like, why do you got to go anywhere at all, right? This is still a location, regardless of, you know, how AI driven it is. Um, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Again, I think there are places that it makes sense. Again, there's a huge labor shortage. It makes sense. Maybe put one of these things on one of those self-driving cars, and we can bring it out to the rural communities too. I got to reach out to this guy, Adrian, to see if he can put it in it. Just, just, um, just make the car, the pod, right? Like (laughs) this car just shows up and like you get in it, you know, kind of thing. And it it takes you to where you're going and it diagnoses you along the way. And, And depending on how bad your diagnosis is, it might reroute you to the local ED. Exactly. Why are nobody, why is nobody asking us about this? Like, <laughs> that's why you tune into the show, Reed, for these hot takes from you and I, right? I mean, that's a great idea. By the way, we trademarked this. So if anybody afford to heard this, this is on, this is our idea. We're taking it to market. So, uh, and anybody who's a venture capitalist out there, reach out to me and Reed on LinkedIn. We'll be more than happy to, uh, to flesh out this uh, uh, performa on this uh, business case. Well, that's a good hot take. That's a good one to kind of go through. Let's put that one in the books. Let's take a brief pause here, Reed, and then we'll come back and we'll uh, go into another topic related to uh, what we do, and that's around innovation. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Okay, like you mentioned before the for the break, we're going to talk a little bit about innovation. Again, part of my daily job, a little bit, at least I pretend like it is at times. But anyway, the topic is who owns it, right? So this is, a, I believe, a Becker's article, and it's titled, How Many Hospital CIOs Still Own Innovation, Data Analytics, and Cybersecurity? So again, not not all about innovation, but but a little bit, right? So they kick off in here talking about, you know, no shocker here that the health system CIO is, you know, that role is becoming more complex, right? They're having to look at shared duties across other C-suite leaders. Um, and so these are people that are over things like analytics or cybersecurity or innovation. What does the CIO do versus like, what do you have a specialized, you know, C-suite leader running, I guess, to some extent? Yeah, and this is a class research um, study that was done. It's also, they partnered with the College of Healthcare Information Management Executives. They even call out, the report calls out that as specialized leadership positions gain prominence in areas like security, data analytics, telehealth, and innovation, it's increasingly important to establish clear boundaries and relationships, ensuring that each leader can effectively contribute to the organization's overarching digital health strategy. In short, what they're saying is you have to understand where your swim lane is and what your responsibilities are, right? Well, again, as technology uh, has become what it's become, right? I I can remember, actually, as a quick aside, I did uh, build a graphic. It's probably been 10 years ago now at this point, if not more, for a CIO, for him to use in a slide deck to explain the evolving focus you know, from a technology standpoint of the CIO, right? And his point was, you know, when he started doing this back in the 90s, you know, you were talking about office updates and, you know, things like that, right? Every so often. And now, I mean, just imagine every time a new iPhone comes out and like just the complexity of just their landscape from a technology, just a hardware perspective, right? So now you couple with that, the increase of, you know, 100% of focus on innovation, focus on analytics, and the focus on cybersecurity, right? Like these have all become huge topics in the, you know, last few years. And the amount of cybersecurity attacks and things like that, I think it's kind of part of the call out here is that does it warrant somebody at that level that's solely responsible for that topic? Yeah, so let's go into the data, the numbers here. I think it tells an interesting story. When we look at these three different areas, that larger health systems are more likely to have a dedicated CISO, Chief Information Security Officer, for instance. A CISO. A CISO. Yeah, that's a good job title, I think. But let's let's break down what the latest study showed. So let's talk about cybersecurity, Reed. Yeah, so somebody at that level, right? Like, like who's leading cybersecurity? I think is the point here, and it's that CISO, VP of IT security, et cetera, at around sixty percent, where the CIO, twenty three percent. It was probably inverse, not not too long ago, right? Yeah, I think that's a big shift that that changed. They also have other people, like you know, the the three remaining ones, like non executive team member is twelve percent. Mm-hmm. Other executive is 3% and then outsourced is 2%. I think it's interesting that 2% of health systems right now outsource their cybersecurity. 
that seems unusual to me that that happens. But I think that big shift right to that CISO or the CISO, 60% being in charge fully of cybersecurity, that seems appropriate. And I think that more and more organizations are starting to look at creating that role because of the high level of risks around cybersecurity. I mean, it would have to be. Again, I don't know really probably anybody that hasn't had to experience some level of interruption, right? I mean, some more than others, certainly, but there's always something, right? And I think just as the proliferation of technology and, you know, kind of that, it's just different, right? It's just different than what it was. And so uh, I I get that. I mean, that makes makes sense. I think security is such a big uh, and vulnerable you know, area, you've got to have somebody at a senior level in charge of that, what they're titled. I mean, I can't imagine it not being a VP role, but somebody's got to be, be over that. Exactly. It's it, And I'm wondering how many of the CISOs or VPs report into the CIO. That's the yeah. other complexity. The other yeah, thing. I would say a fair amount, right? Yeah. I mean, I would think. But again, shift, you know, go to the next topic there around data and analytics. We have more. There's just more of it than we used to have, especially from a data management standpoint. Uh, but they're still showing here that the CIO, 34% of the time is is kind of the, the person in charge, right? And then, you know, a chief data or analytics officer type role, right there close, right? So you're about a third CIO, almost a third chief data and analytics officer. And then you have 16% as a non-executive team member. That's interesting. That kind of shows that for a lot of organizations, this formalized role or formalized responsibility around analytics and data management is there, but not at an executive level. It's still like maybe a, it's seen as a tactical execution within the organization, maybe a subset of what the CIO does. I think you'll see more and more organizations understand the value of their data. Where like right now, I think the way we talk about it, it's much more of a uh, kind of defensive reactionary role of like, well, we have all of this. What do we do with it? Versus we have all this. What do we do with it? Right. I mean, it's a little more of a action based idea of, you know, hey, this is valuable. We should not be giving this away. What jumped out at me about this uh, study, though, is they showed that 16 percent indicated another executive is in charge of this. So. I wonder who that other executive might be. Like, is it the chief strategy officer, do you think? Yeah, or chief chief digital officer, potentially. You see a fair amount of those roles now, uh, or have. That could be somewhere uh, in there, I guess, or CMIO. I I don't know. It's interesting. Okay, let's turn to the third topic that we called out here is innovation. Innovation, near and dear to our hearts. We think a lot about it. Not surprisingly, 55% of those health systems surveyed, the CIO owns innovation. And then another lagging behind by about 25 points at 30%, there's a chief innovation or technology officer. I mean, I see that more is, at least for us, we have a chief digital information officer. And that's probably where that falls for the most part. You know, my swim lane is just the consumer-focused side of the equation. So we start talking about staffing or some of our clinical ops initiatives and things like that. You know, I'm probably not as as much in there, especially not from an operations standpoint. So I don't know. That's interesting. I, you know, CIO still being at 55%. 
I wonder though, you know, is the chief innovation officer, is that going the way of the chief experience officer title? Yeah. Or at least are those converging or what, is that what you mean by going the way of, or is that going? Well, I'm like starting to wane. Like it seemed like a good idea at some point and we're not sure now. I think CTO or chief digital officer or some of those. And so maybe it's semantics to some degree. It's interesting how these things are kind of playing out. And yeah, and I agree, like in our organizations, we need to have one person kind of responsible for these activities or these strategies. But I'm also seeing more and more people being on a collaborative group to dedicate it towards this, right? Sort of a governance group that kind of informed this. So it's it's really one person obviously drives the strategy, but more and more people are kind of weighing in on the requirements of the strategy, similar to what you're doing there at Ardent. I, I don't know that there's a right or wrong. I think it really depends on the more holistic picture of your organization, right? Like some of these C-suite titles, for lack of a better word, really only make sense in the context of the ones around them. Again, you know, I've seen some organizations where the pendulum has swung almost too far that direction and you see like, well, they have a chief digital officer, chief transformation officer, chief information officer, anything like, what are all these people doing? That's where you kind of get into, especially on the data and innovation side of the equation, that overlaps a lot of areas. Security, you can kind of silo a little easier and saying like, hey, this is a specific thing somebody's in charge of, I guess. It doesn't bleed into other people's areas quite as much from a responsibility standpoint. Quite frankly, I think a lot of people also, it's not attractive to be part of that. Whereas innovation, everybody wants to be part of that, right? Yeah. Sounds so, exciting. Yeah, it Very does. Exciting. Interesting. Interesting results of this study. Okay. Let's take another break here and then we'll come back with our third helping of hot takes. Another article about AI. Big surprise, Read. We'll do that right after this pause. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Okay, Reed, here is our third article, and it's what I colloquially call AI Gone Bad. And it's related to an article, or I guess an expose, that Stat News, our good friends at Stat News, just recently published. Remember, Stat News are the people that broke the uh, whole Facebook Metapixel uh, thing and, yeah. and you know, led uh, to the Pixel whole. Gate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, this article is entitled Denied by AI How Medicare Advantage Plans Use Algorithms to Cut Off Care for Seniors in Need. Doesn't sound good. It does not sound good. And this article, which again, we'll link to in the show notes, gets into it. And they and actually, this article is rife with stories about patients being denied uh, care. But what the root of it is, is they're tracing it back to AI algorithms. So they kick off by saying that health insurance companies have rejected medical claims for as long as they've been around. I guess it's a biased take on things here, but um, you know, I get, but that's how they kick off the article, right? But uh, a stat investigation found that AI is now driving denials to new heights in Medicare Advantage patients. Mm. They go further to say that some insurers are using unregulated predictive algorithms 
quote unquote, under the guise of scientific rigor to pinpoint the precise moment when they can plausibly cut off payment for an older patient's treatment. And of course, that's causing a lot of backlash from doctors, from insurers themselves, and more tragically, from patients. And there's some really heart-wrenching stories in here of patients being denied care. But let's dig a little bit deeper into this, Reed. Algorithms driving personalized care is an interesting just concept in general. Because, I mean, that's what we do. If we think about the consumer engagement side of the equation, the idea is like, how can we use AI to drive personalized experiences? Like topically, I mean, like not with Medicare Advantage necessarily, but just that's what we are looking at, doing, focused on. But again, AI algorithms are directive in nature, right? They're not definitive. Mm -hmm. A gentleman, David Lifshutz, who's the Associate Director of the Center for Medicare Advocacy, that's a nonprofit group that reviews denials, you know, uh, denial claims for two years with Medicare patients. He indicates that while the firms say the algorithm is suggestive, it ends up being a hard and fast rule that the plan or the care management firms follow. There's no Mm. deviation from it. There's no accounting for changes in condition. And there's no accounting for situations in which the person could use more care. How much of that do you think is, it's just easy? Like that's just the easy path. I think that it, that there is, I mean, there is that, right? We, no, I'm, not, I'm not trying to excuse it by any means. I'm just wondering if people are just clicking the easy button because they're understaffed or don't understand or, you know what I'm saying? Like there's got to be some level of human error here too, right? Well, I think that the, the big case of human error here is to not question what the AI algorithm, you know, comes out with. So I guess you're right. It is sort of like a big easy button. And don't get me wrong, these AI predictive tools are are great and they're getting better and better as we go. But to apply it, and in this particular case, we're talking about Medicare Advantage, right? Which is, by the way, the article calls out that's become highly profitable for insurers as more patients over 65 and people with disabilities flock to that plan because of the lower premiums and drug coverage. But this also gives more power to the insurers to deny and restrict services, And that's really what's happening. Big surprise. I think it's a kind of a fundamental flaw in our entire healthcare system here is that we have, we've leveraged too much the power of the insurer to make some of these decisions. And now AI is coming in as like the big easy tool, like you said, right. And is causing a bit of this problem here. I think what's interesting is like, if you go back to that first article that we talked about, um, you know, relative to, you know, getting care from a pod, right? And AI and that kind of thing. I feel like, you know, we're saying like, it's fine for some things, but for some things we need humans. Right? I, I feel like that's very similar here, right? I think for probably some decision-making ability, uh, we can automate that, you know, whether it's Medicare Advantage related or, or not, it doesn't really matter. But at some point, you know, we're talking about avoidance of care and some of the you know sickest people in the country, probably we got to have some people involved to take into account the nuances. I think you're right. There are rules around Medicare about denial of coverage, et cetera. But a recent examination of federal inspectors of denials made in 2019, and that's, you know, before this whole AI hullabaloo came about, found that private insurers repeatedly strayed beyond Medicare's detailed set of rules 
and we're using internally developed criteria to delay or deny care. There's been kind of like we've been off of that track of like regulation or deviation from the, the standard set of rules for a number of years. I think that this is going to cause even more concern and it might result in a backlash. And again, once again, Stat News is here with an expose to cause some backlash in our industry around how we're going to be using AI. Because this article even points out, right, that AI models used by physicians to detect diseases like cancer or other types of treatments are evaluated and regulated by the FDA, by the Food and Drug Administration. But tools used by insurers in deciding whether treatments should be paid for or not are not subjected to any kind of scrutiny, even though they also influence the care of the nation's sickest patients. And so I just have a feeling, I mean, you know, and we, we, we've we talked about the Biden administration coming out with some regulations around AI. I think this is going to cause an enhanced scrutiny about how AI is being used in the healthcare journey, so to speak, and particularly with the insurers. It'll be interesting to see, that's for sure. AI seems to be the go-to for a lot of things. And again, doesn't make it wrong necessarily, but you know, we'll we'll see where it goes. Well, there you go. Well, there's our third hot take of this episode, Reed. So that was a. I, I hope those people, you all listening in, are enjoying this uh, this dialogue here. And we're just going to take a quick pause here and then close out the show. This real quick Thanksgiving show with some recommendations. We'll be back right after this break. All right, fun, uh, fun episode. It's always good to kind of do these quick news check-ins, if you will. And uh, anyway, excited that hopefully everybody's, whether you're about to have Thanksgiving, just had Thanksgiving, I don't know, you're listening to this a year from now. <laughs> it doesn't, I don't think it really matters, but appreciate, appreciate everybody listening for sure. And uh, hopefully you found this interesting. We'd love to know format-wise what you guys think. Again, speaking of survey that's out there, sign up for the TPS report, find us on LinkedIn, give some feedback. You can sign up for the TPS report over at the website, touchpoint.health. But anyway, all of that is, you know, super helpful as we kind of think about, you know, what we do and how we do going forward. So, all right, before we close it out, a couple of uh, recommendations. What do you got? Well, um, my recommendation is going to be around Thanksgiving and we're now in the holiday season officially. Can you believe it? We're already here. So I'm going to recommend a television program that always puts me in the mood of this season, and that's The Great British Baking Show, or if you're oh. in the UK, The Great British Bake Off. I've been a big fan of the show. I may have even recommended it a time or two before. I just love watching the show because, first of all, it's great to see all the different stuff that people bake. I love the format. It's a very low-stakes, low-pressure competition between bakers it's fun. It's British. So the, the different colloquialisms they use, like uh, in one recent episode, they define the word claggy, which I never knew what that meant, but they use that often. Huh. They got a chance to define what that means. That's if you eat something that's claggy, it's usually like a cake or a pastry that sticks to the roof of your mouth. I didn't okay. know that. Okay. That's good to know. It's a very much British term. The British baking show is on Netflix, but also on the Roku channel, they stream all of the historical episodes, all of the back seasons of the British Baking Show. It's been around for well over a decade now. And they also have a kind of a spinoff called The Great American Baking Show, in which the same British judges invite Americans to come and do their own little baking show. And they have a holiday 
season that's out now where they do a holiday bake-off. It's a kind of a smaller season, so to speak, but it's uh, really great. So I am going to recommend The Great British Baking Show, aka The Great British Bake Off. And then like a corollary of that, The Great American Baking Show. And you can find mm-hmm. all of that on Roku. And I would definitely watch it with the family if you're ever interested in watching people bake and a kind of a fun, lightweight uh, sort of baking competition. That's my recommendation. Nice. I am recommending something. I don't know if anybody needs this or not. Yes, I'm this really selling this recommendation. But um, <laughs> no. So everybody has an office chair. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess everybody does. Most people do. They're listening. Have have a dedicated chair they use at their desk. It probably has casters on it. I'm assuming more often than not they're plastic and. You know, you go to like uh, Office Depot or something, you buy the big mat, the big plastic clear mat thing that you put down so that those casters don't like tear up your floor, like your hardwood floors or something like that. I actually replaced mine with these like heavy duty casters and they look like the wheels that would go on like inline skates or like rollerblades, right? It's like these big rubber. I mean, they probably are the same wheels, quite honestly. And so anyway, you can go on Amazon, you can look for office chair replacement, rubber wheels, you know, something to that effect. You can find a number of different ones for 30, 40 bucks. Then you don't have to have that dumb looking mat, first off. And it'll work on (laughs) hardwoods, tile, carpet. It doesn't really matter, but your chair will roll much easier and it won't tear the floor up. So there you go. If you get a new chair for Christmas uh, coming up, go ahead, throw in a set of these wheels too. Well, you know, and I'm thinking, too, that if you put on these kind of inline skate style casters mm-hmm. on your mm-hmm. wheels, mm-hmm. think about those all of those office games where, you you know, you push a colleague down the hallway. You'll win every time. Win every time. You can even yeah, take yeah, these yeah. things out to the skate park. You can be riding in the skate park. Yeah. I mean, especially with the holidays coming up, you may want to preempt and go ahead and get some because if you do the office games... Uh, I mean, it's this is like an easy win. I mean, <laughs> much more stable, faster, you know. That's what it's all about is winning. Yeah, exactly. That's all office sports are about is winning. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because otherwise, I mean, we can't let the person from accounting get the Starbucks gift card. <laughs> there you go. All right, folks. Well, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to another episode of Touchpoint. We certainly appreciate all the support. Hope everybody has a great Thanksgiving break. And we'll see you on the backside. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.